Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia Baker-Whitelaw and here is my co-host Morgan Davies. Hello. So this week we watched the iconic 1975 thriller Jaws, directed by Steven Spielberg. At the height of summer tourist season, a coastal town is terrorised by a man-eating shark. Roy Scheider stars as the town's pragmatic sheriff, with Robert Shaw playing an eccentric local shark hunter and Richard Dreyfuss as a visiting marine biologist. The film's legendary music was composed by John Williams. Uh, So Morgan saw this movie for the first time, I had seen it before, and uh, we both have the uncontroversial opinion that it's super fun. (laughs) Great movie. (laughs) Yes, we are here to tell you all that Jaws is good. Full take. Yes. 45 years after it was released, you know, wild stuff. And uh, before we go any further, just FYI, Morgan is recording without a microphone because she is very thematically uh, currently at the coast on vacation. So her sound quality is perhaps slightly smaller, but our content will be as vibrant and fascinating as ever. We have lots of info on the uh, bizarre happenings that happened behind the scenes of Jaws. Yes, I am on Cape Cod currently, which this movie takes place on a fictional island called Amity Island, which I mean, they shot it at Martha's Vineyard, but like, Basically, it's like on the island slash Cape Cod culturally, which is part of why I suggested it last week. I was like, well, I'll be kind of in the right spot. And it is kind of funny. Like, it clearly looks correct because they shot it around here, but also takes place in a fantasy land where (laughs) they've just made stuff up. Like, there is not really any cultural specificity, which is fine. But uh, there are lots of sharks in the ocean around here now because the sea is warmer. So that has come up in conversation on this trip, which is amusing to me. And yeah, I this is one of those movies that I had always meant to see and just somehow hadn't seen. It's so fun. Like It's just such a good movie. And I think also when something is this much in the culture, it kind of gets reduced to a certain number of images or memes in a way. So for me, before seeing it, like Jaws is the shark and like the theme music, which everybody knows, and all of the jokes that everyone have been making on Twitter morbidly in the last year about the mayor from Jaws vis-a-vis the American political situation, which we'll talk about in more depth. (laughs) But like, I had all that stuff in my head and then you watch the movie and it's not that that stuff is in the movie, but also it's just like a great film Right, like with lots of fun characters. Like this is a tremendous movie for men. A great masculinity yes. film. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, American film in the seventies was really when men peaked in this country. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I just had such a good time watching it, and it's really fascinating on multiple levels. But particularly, obviously, in the context of Steven Spielberg's career, because this was his big like prodigy breakout movie when he was very young and had only done a couple like very small things before this he'd done like some tv work he'd done a couple of tv movies he'd done one feature film which was sugarland express which is also where he met john williams so he brought john williams in to do the music for this and the rest is history because williams is now an icon but um uh, you know, topically, I actually watched spielberg's columbo episode very recently so i feel like i'm prepared for his early career and um it's a really fucking good episode. Like you can tell he's an incredible director, like in his mid twenties making that TV pilot. It's great. And with Jaws, uh, he was 28 at this point 
And he was not the producer's first choice. Basically, there was this novel by Peter Benchley, which the producers of this film wanted to adapt. It was a very new novel published in 1974. And um, after a few sort of bigger names turned it down, they were like, bring in Spielberg. And Spielberg then brought in this comedy writer named Carl Gottlieb, who kind of rewrote the screenplay by the novelist who just, you know, he wasn't a professional screenplay writer. Um, and that kind of changed a lot of the book. Like they removed extraneous stuff and they made it a lot funnier, um, kind of a typical adaptation process. And that was kind of the more sensible part of the production process. Once they actually got to filming, the whole thing was just like chaos from top to bottom. Like every story and article you will read about Jaws is basically just like, it's great that no one drowned while making this. (laughs) Because we think of it as this like huge blockbuster thing, because as we'll discuss later, like it became this cultural phenomenon that basically contributed to changing Hollywood. But it wasn't like a super big budget movie. You know, the initial budget was like under 10 million. They went hugely over budget. And after Spielberg figured out that it wasn't actually viable to train sharks to make a film, uh, he was like, okay, let's make some animatronic sharks and also film it at sea, which at this point in time was unprecedented. Like you, you should not and cannot film an entire movie like in the ocean instead of doing it in a tank. So... The film was meant to shoot in 55 days. It took 159 days to shoot, which is catastrophically over time. Yes. Everyone had a nightmarish experience filming this because they were like, you know, boats sinking, the machinery is breaking, all these animatronic sharks were constantly had seawater in them. People were seasick, people were feuding, but it worked out really well because like the film itself was great. It was so successful that Spielberg did not get blackballed from Hollywood, which he was concerned about because of, once again, 159 days of shooting you're not meant to go more than like a week over and also the film kind of improved because it was constantly in flux while they were making it because the rewriter Carl Gottlieb was basically on set rewriting as they made the film so he would rewrite each scene each day with input from the actors and there was like a lot of dialogue improv which I think kind of shows because there's lots of fun little lines in here which are very characterful and there's this great kind of quote from Spielberg where he said, the shark not working was a godsend. It made me become more like Alfred Hitchcock than Ray Harryhausen. Um, Ray Harryhausen obviously being this classic 20th century film guy who made all these sort of little stop motion puppets and stuff. Very cool. But um, kind of the, the big legacy of Jaws is that it's all about suspense and you only see the actual shark for a few minutes and it takes like well over an hour before you get any proper shark content. Yeah, I mean, one of the brilliant things about the movie is that you get so many shots, especially in the first half, and the movie is really divided up into two parts. But in the first half that takes place on the island and is more about the sort of political stuff and them sort of trying to be like, well, we don't really know that there's a shark problem, despite the fact there clearly is a shark problem. You have lots of point of view shots from the shark underwater as it's like scoping out the next meal. So there are all these shots of like people's legs and stuff in the water and you don't need to see the shark to be frightened because it's so much scarier to get that angle and be like, you know, something's coming and we all know what a shark looks like. So, you know, that's fine. And the actual way they handle the shark 
in large part because, as you say, the animatronics situation was just like a catastrophe the whole time. Like, there's some footage of the animatronic shark. They, like, splice it with some footage that they have of actual sharks swimming around. Until the very end where the animatronic shark is, like, out of the water and there's a, like, substantial footage of it, you really wouldn't know that it's not real because the shots are so brief and they're so intelligently done that, like, obviously, you know it's fake, but, like, that's not what you're thinking about, which obviously adds to the movie, right? Okay, so we kind of talk a bit more about, like, the three main characters and the general premise then to jog people's memories. Yeah, why don't you do that? Yeah, so our protagonist is Chief Brody, who is played by Roy Scheider. And uh, he is this immediately sort of very trustworthy figure. He's a sensible and practical dad. And he's moved to this seaside town with his wife and their kids. And he does not particularly like the water. He does not like, (laughs) he's not well suited to this environment. Whereas everyone else is just like loving their lives and jobs in this peaceful, sunny summer tourist town. So this kind of immediately puts him as slightly an outsider compared to the rest of the locals, which is setting the scene for when the first shark attack happens in the film's opening scenes, this young woman goes skinny dipping and gets brutally murdered by the evil nasty shark. And then when a little boy is also eaten a couple of days later, it becomes this big scandal in the town. And the mayor's response is infamously to basically try and deny that there is a problem and to be like, we need to open up the town's businesses on the 4th of July. This is like essential to the economy and is just attempting to manipulate everything in a way that will play down the issue, which is why this has been such a popular meme during COVID times, because it is an extremely familiar mindset. And meanwhile, Brody is like the voice of reason and is getting really paranoid. And especially after this boy dies, like the boy's mother is like, what the fuck were you thinking? Like, I didn't realize this other woman had just died and there was this real danger at hand. And that kind of kickstarts this real search to try and hunt down the shark. So like this woman who's just lost her son pays for people to go and try and hunt the shark, which obviously is not effective. They catch a wrong shark. And the reason they know it's the wrong shark is because uh, by this point, they've got an academic expert on hand. His name is Hooper. He's played by Richard Dreyfuss and he is playing just a fantastic nerd character, just like aggressive, like chip in his shoulder, but huge nerd. And then the third of our three main characters kind of doesn't really have a role until halfway through the movie where the film goes in this transition from being on land to being in the ocean. But he is this very sort of eccentric individual who is a shark hunter and he has the boat that will take these other two men out into the ocean to try and track down this killer shark and save the town. And his name is Quint. He's played by Robert Shaw, who is slightly older than the other two and is a kind of classic Hollywood character actor. And so you've got this these three very different dynamic personalities trapped together on this boat um, with Quint as this almost sort of like Moby Dick style narrative that's going on with him. Because he's like, as it turns out, we learn that he is just obsessed with killing sharks due to his backstory. Yeah, there's he has a big monologue when they're out there like getting drunk on the boat about how he was like on the mission to bomb Hiroshima and then, like, on the aircraft carrier after, 
like the, I don't, I can't remember the details, but like somehow, like I guess it got bombed, and then like they're all in the water, and there were like thousands of sharks, and all the men got eaten. And I was like, this is a little bit over the top, <laughs> but <laughs> he's very good though, and it kind of is in keeping with the movie's general tone of over the top this but it's kind of perfect that he's like i have a traumatic backstory specifically to do with shark trauma and yeah. that's why i must kill all the sharks it's like well that's a to b okay <laughs> the whole section of the boat is very much sort of masculinity crisis because you have this big conflict between hooper the academic he's this scruffy nerd who knows about sharks but he also is very aggro and he's rich, but like he doesn't seem rich. But there is an obvious kind of class difference between this working class salt of the ocean fisherman man and this guy who's basically funding his academic career because he has inherited wealth. And then you've got, you know, the protagonist Brody as the sort of voice of reason between them. But I was kind of interested to look up a bit on the background of the actors here because Robert Shaw, his performance is pretty out there compared to the other characters. Like Morgan said, there's some quite fun personalities in this movie overall. But like Quint, he's got this whole accent going on, which apparently a lot of his accent and his quirky seafaring anecdotes were based off this real guy named Craig Kingsbury, who was a local who actually has a sort of small cameo role as one of the fishermen in the movie and also Robert Shaw and Richard Dreyfuss had like a genuine feud on set I was watching this relatively recent interview with Dreyfuss and it was one of those situations where it's like he's such an old and established actor that he can just like say the truth instead of just saying everyone was lovely to work with and also Robert Shaw has been dead for like 40 or 50 years so he was kind of saying yeah Robert Shaw great actor um often really charming but also he had a total Jekyll and Hyde personality and said that Shaw was basically saw Dreyfus as like his target and was sort of belittling his masculinity making him feel really insecure about his, himself as an actor and this sort of thing and also it does seem like he had a pretty serious drinking problem so there was a lot of real life kind of making its way into those vibes on the boat <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I was seeing some stuff about this uh, actor situation, too. And not that you want that dynamic, but it does, as you say, mirror the film. So probably contributed in some kind of mildly productive way. Shaw died when he was 51, so it can't have been that long after this film and was a huge alcoholic. So it kind of makes sense. He was a bit all over the place. Those two characters... The the dynamic between them is really entertaining, uh, even if, unfortunately, it was not very enjoyable for Richard Dreyfuss on making the movie. And the situation with the three of them is also pretty fun, because Brody, the sort of kind of main character, is clearly just like, I don't want to be involved in whatever's going on here. I'm just going to sit here and not say anything. I don't like being on a boat. And meanwhile, the two of them are like completely going at it. So the sort of dynamic between the three of them is pretty entertaining. And the fact that, again, the movie is split into two is really interesting because the first half, I mean, it's functionally a horror movie without quite being a horror movie, right? So the first half is more, again, this like small town dynamic, which is drawing more on political and social problems. Like, I mean, it's small. very character-based in a way that I think we all associate with Spielberg, where he's really good at, you know, these depictions of relatable middle-class Americana in the 20th century. 
where there is lots of quite individual characters, but they're basically just sort of average white families, you know, which is what this movie is about. And then it kind of puts them into this alien situation in the second half where you've got these three guys who are trapped on this boat facing down drowning and shark attacks for the next hour of the film. Well, right. It's like the structure becomes the like people trapped in a house horror movie, right? Or like trapped on a spaceship or whatever. Who's going to die first? So it's, again, like structurally mirroring different genres of film in a really interesting way. And there are two things happening in one movie because all the stuff in the first half about like the politics of these small communities and the power that the mayor has over what's happening in a destructive way, right? Because he just says, no, we're going to keep going. And then like people keep dying. That's not part of the second half of the movie at all because it just completely leaves that environment. And then it becomes all about just like these people trapped in a boat and what's going to happen once things inevitably start to go really wrong. And I think both halves of the movie are really good, but they're really quite different, which I just found that really interesting because the way people have been talking about this film over the past year has been way more about the political stuff. And I feel like kind of images I've seen of the movie are more from the first half. Yeah, that part is like completely resonating with people now. (laughs) And it's whereas sort of, if you look at the sort of classical analysis of this movie, like from the time, there's lots of discussion about like Nixon. And it's like, we're we're not going to talk about that because like we don't know or care about that element. But like to me, the second half, feels so obviously similar to slasher movies, which were huge in the 70s. But kind of the difference is that a lot of those classic slasher movies just don't interest me at all because the whole thing is just so experiential. Like it's all just about like the knife, you know? And in this movie, because you've got this really big character-based buildup, it's so much more interesting. And like, obviously this is a famously acclaimed movie. So like it is a high quality film, but it kind of combines that visceral and very physical sense of terror with a lot more characterization than we'd see in a slasher film. And it's also very impressive that all of this is happening during daytime in these really brightly coloured scenarios, which I think is part of the reason why it resonated so much, because the seaside beach setting is so familiar and relatable. And it just adds a lot more fear than the concept of a haunted house, because like everyone goes to the beach And the way that Spielberg builds up the sense of the sense of suspense, which is like the movie's signature quality, is all to do with stuff that we can just understand so easily. So from a storytelling perspective, a lot of that is just sort of the ways he shows the shark without actually showing the the shark. So there's all these scenes where there's these sort of floating objects above the ocean, which are sort of illustrating where the shark is and how it's coming towards people rather than showing the actual shark. And it's really effective because it builds suspense, but it also kind of makes us identify more with the characters because we are not able to see underwater during those scenes. So it feels like we are also trapped in this sort of limbo position above the water, like trying to guess where the shark is. And it just like, it has like a different effect to a film where everything is sort of in the dark and very ominous, you know? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I mean, obviously I love those kinds of horror movies too, but this does feel way more familiar. And the scenes in the first half where you know something's going to happen, but you don't know quite what yet. And he'll have lots of shots of like different people in the ocean or like floating on something in the ocean. 
and cut between, you know, four or five people and you don't know which one is going to be the one that gets eaten. And it's like very sunny and people are having a great time and running around. And this kind of scene happens a few times near the beginning of the movie. And there's like a signaling to you in the audience that like something is coming, but you don't quite know what. And it is in this very kind of, in a way, idyllic Americana type scene that then will sort of turn very rapidly into something really horrible, I think is really, really effective. And you do have the one character of the police chief who's just standing there like trying to get everyone to realize that it's all going to go wrong really fast. Yeah, we're all sort of like looking at this page being like, all these people's toes are getting nibbled. (laughs) (laughs) And there's that like famous zoom shot where like Spielberg just zooms into Roy Scheider's face while he's absolutely terrified because there was like a potential shark attack happening on the beach. Yeah. There is also a really funny scene where he and Richard Dreyfuss are on a boat at night trying to sort of go out and find the shark with radar and he's talking about why his family moved to this island he's from new york and he used to be a cop in new york city and he's like the crime rate's so terrible you can't make any difference it's all awful but like there hasn't been a murder here in 20 years and like one man can really have a difference and richard dreyfus is not listening to him at all and <laughs> meanwhile like the whole plot of this film is that all these people are getting eaten and no one's doing anything about it. Obviously, it's not like a person murdering them. I don't know how intentional the sort of political subtext of that is, but it really made me laugh because you have this like ex-New York cop who's like, yeah, New York is so bad. So I decided to come to this idyllic place. And it's like, no, you're totally ineffectual here also. (laughs) It, It definitely did make me think about all the conversations we're all having about police abolition where sort of one of the arguments is there are already communities where the police effectively have already been abolished, like wealthy suburban communities. And this just felt like such a perfect illustration of that because the introduction of the movie includes this sort of scene where he's coming in from the shark attack and goes to the office and they have this sort of comedic exchange with his secretary where we hear all of the complete non-crimes he's dealing with in this town. But also the reason why nothing serious or dangerous in this t- is happening in this town aside from the shark attack is because it's really prosperous. Like it's not, it's not like because the people are better or because the location is better. It's all kind of economic, you know? Yes. And also, I mean, I know we keep being like, this movie's relevant in COVID, but just to reiterate, it felt completely surreal to me to be watching this in 2021 because the degree to which every political dynamic that's going on in the first half of the movie is like exactly what has been happening (laughs) for the past 18 months. It's like it was written this year as a commentary. And it really did make me think like, oh yeah, nothing has changed at all. (laughs) And like when the the breaking point finally comes and like the main sheriff guy persuades the mayor that he's fucked up and has to do something, the mayor doesn't like man up and actually do something. He has a breakdown. And also he's like, my kids were on that beach too. So he's like admitting he put his children in danger, but also is still completely ineffectual because he's not qualified to deal with this. And in the end, it's these three weirdos who go out in the boat and deal with it. And like, even they 
almost die because the final act of the film is them like having this physical struggle with this shark where you know man is failing to tame nature until the very end of the movie i mean spoilers but one of them dies <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and there's this really fantastic scene where richard dreyfus is in like the shark cage underneath which he's brought along with him there's um you know there's Chekhov's shark cage is introduced halfway through this film yes. um, and the reason why this scene kind of happened the way it was is another of these great behind the scenes details where there was these professional divers named Ron and Valerie Taylor who were tasked with getting footage of real sharks for the movie and they coincidentally filmed some fantastic footage of a shark like breaking into a shark cage and Spielberg was like obviously we have to use this so they kind of rewrote the scenes to, so instead of Richard Dreyfus dying he is in this shark tank breaking scene and does survive. So we do get a happy ending with those two characters who I believe return for the sequels, which we did not watch and probably will not be watching because um, there's uh, there's only going to be one Jaws. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, the stuff with the shark tank is among the scarier and most visceral parts of the movie because it's so clear that there's an actual shark involved. As I was saying, you're not really thinking about that that much watching the movie because all the special effects are so well done. But the bits they use from that footage where the actual shark is like slamming around on top of that cage, like clearly <laughs> it's a real shark, which is quite striking. And I think the Nixon stuff, back to the politics for a minute, that you mentioned like without having thought about that in detail too much is pretty interesting because so many of these 70s movies are a reaction to that administration and Watergate, even if they're not directly commenting on it. Like that sense of paranoia, obviously you have all the paranoia films in the 70s, but also just like disillusionment with the American government and establishment. And even in a film like this, which is designed to be such a populist like entertainment that sense of just unease and like the established system doesn't work and isn't going to protect you is present too right which is part of what makes that decade so successful for films and then the 80s not so much because that is not the tone of the 80s in america so Everything kind of worked for a decade in terms of like everyone being cynical about everything and then not so much anymore. And as is so often the case with really big hit films like this, which are also genuinely great as well as being genuinely entertaining, the main thing that Hollywood took away from this was not all of the sort of complex characterization and sophisticated political subtext, but was in fact Big Shark Scary. So we then had a flood of a million <laughs> shark movies, which continue on to this day with um, more B-movie type things like Sharknado. But honestly, there's like, there is a pretty big shark movie that comes out every, you know, couple of years. And this movie was like a huge cultural phenomenon. It wasn't just like a sleeper hit. The studio marketed it very heavily. Um, there were kind of a couple of movies that came out in the mid 70s, which received this level of marketing push. The other one is a film which I don't recall, but has not stood the test of time, which is just like a crime thriller of some kind. But Jaws is the really famous one because like in the lead up to this movie coming out, the pushed TV advertising in a way that like really hadn't been done before. There was a ton of merchandise. The concept of killer sharks was just like part of the pop culture zeitgeist in a massive way. And like if you go back to kind of 70s coverage of this, there were, there were all these sort of newspaper think pieces about 
people being scared of sharks and people not going in the ocean and stuff. And it really did make people scared of sharks. Like the reason why so many people are scared of sharks is because of this like pop culture trend that began with the Jaws movie, you know? And like, there are actually sort of shark conservation groups which are actively pissed about the Jaws phenomenon for understandable reasons. Cause it's like the way sharks are depicted in this movie obviously doesn't bear any resemblance to reality because it's like this giant monster which is like twice the size of a normal shark which is jumping onto boats and is like attacking people en masse like a you know it's basically a serial killer you know and you know they even frame it in a serial killer way in the beginning of the movie with it sort of targeting this like nubile young women you know it really wants to get women and children Uh, and the whole movie is just like so effective because Spielberg is such a good director it's like you feel like you're really in danger and the reality is that like most people are like not going to be in the ocean far enough out for there to be a shark attack it's pretty rare and that doesn't mean you should just go and kill a ton of sharks which people did yeah I mean watching it I was like this is such a great movie I'm having such a good time However, not great for sharks. (laughs) It's like anti-shark propaganda. And there's like this point where like when he's reading this book about sharks, like, and I was like, I can't tell whether this book, whether we're meant to think that the book he's reading is accurate or whether it's meant to be inaccurate. Because he's like, oh yeah, you know, like sharks can live for 500 years. And there's like a picture of like a shark biting through the hull of a boat. And I'm like, sharks don't live for 500 years and don't bite through the hulls of boats very often. But like... (laughs) You really successfully made me terrified of this like almost supernatural creature which is haunting the country. <laughs> well, and they try to get themselves out of it a little bit near the end when the shark is just like chasing after the boat to get them, which is not behavior that like I mean that doesn't make any sense. And they're kind of like you know, have you ever seen anything like this to Richard Dreyfuss, who is the shark expert? And he's like, no, they never do this. And it's like, right, because this doesn't make any fucking sense for any animal to be like, I'm chasing after these humans in a boat because I just want to kill them so badly. Like, come on. And as you say, the kind of women and children element is obviously intended to provoke a kind of sympathy or like particular like fear or outrage reaction. My only complaint really about this movie is the naked woman at the beginning is a little bit much. And obviously like women in the movie in general is like not, it's not what the film's interested in, which is fine, but definitely the targets of, of the shark in the first half before the, it's just about the men on the boat. You're, you're meant to be like, oh God, the poor children are in danger. Which, I mean, it does get you, right? Like, I too was feeling like, oh no, like, I don't want the kids to die. But it's totally manipulative. In a way that's effective, but, you know, come on. The one other thing I wanted to mention about, like, the cultural impact of Jaws is um, the fascinating detail that Jaws is probably responsible for Baby Shark. There was this great episode of the podcast Decoder Ring, I think it was last year or a couple of years ago, which kind of looked into Baby Shark, which I imagine probably most people are familiar with, but like you will definitely be familiar with it if you have any children in your life under the age of like six. This has been the biggest song in the world for like the past five years. And it's this unbelievably catchy, annoying song that is just like about a baby shark. And um, But people kind of don't know where it came from because it became like a viral YouTube song, but people were like, who wrote this? 
And this podcast, Decoder Ring, looked into kind of the history of it and traced it back through like fucking decades. And it seems like it started out as a campfire clapping song chant thing in the late 20th century. And all of these sort of actions to do with the shark jaws and stuff are corresponding with the movie Jaws because this was like at the height of the pop culture shark um, obsession and obviously like kids and camp counselors would have been talking about it and um, apparently there's some kind of like you know musical motif in the original earlier baby shark things which kind of sounds like the Jaws theme I don't recall the specifics but I was like that is fascinating (laughs) I had no idea that this was the case and my brain is just expanding thinking about it (laughs) (laughs) everything's connected i also like we have to talk briefly before we conclude about the oscars this year because this is maybe the most stacked best picture category in like the history of the academy awards so jazz got nominated for best picture kind of interestingly it only got nominated for four awards so it was best picture score obviously which of course john williams won and then sound and some other technical award editing editing so it won all three technical awards and then was also nominated for best picture and nothing else so clearly it was just like this movie is a phenomenon and everyone loves it but they weren't gonna vote for other big stuff and there is a legendary clip of steven spielberg age like 30 or whatever watching the nominations on television and like not being pleased that he was not nominated for best director. (laughs) I don't know if you have seen this. It's worth a watch. He has two friends with him also who are like these New York guys who are like declaiming about how it's such an outrage that Spielberg, who made the best movie of all time, was not nominated for best director. Oh my God, it is just incredible. He was replaced by Federico Fellini. So like, you know, that's tough. But the other the other nominees for Best Picture were Nashville, which we have covered on the podcast, one of the best movies ever made, in my opinion. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which won. Dog Day Afternoon and Barry Lyndon, which, like, that's absurd. <laughs> that's, that's a ridiculous list of movies. So it was a different time. A better time, you, you could argue, for cinema. Um, but... I'll link to the video of him in in the show notes. It's so funny. I actually remembered it being more obnoxious. And it's a little bit obnoxious, but mostly just kind of entertaining. But you really do get the sense of like, oh yeah, this is like the Hollywood Wonderkind. It made by far the most money of any movie up to that point. And then Star Wars is a couple years later and really blows the roof off everything. But those and two then Hollywood really is crazy. like every movie now has to be a blockbuster that just makes a yeah. fuck ton of money like these two films. Yeah. And I mean, they're really credited with like the change of how Hollywood functions, which is too bad because now everything is broken. But this movie's obviously great. And who could possibly have imagined? Like, as you say, it was marketed a lot, but the budget was something like 10 million and it made over $400 million, which that did not happen. You know. I mean, what can I say, Morgan? American audiences love wildlife. Yeah, it is pretty funny that, like, the shark expert in this movie isn't like, I love sharks. I love to study sharks. Maybe we shouldn't kill all of them. He's like, I just love hunting sharks. Like, what? Oh, a little bit warped. 
but you know i mean it's, it's truly it's a, it's it's really a, a throwback to the era of you know man versus nature is the whole vibe yep. here <laughs> pretty much but yeah i just had such a good time watching this film oh we've actually not talked about the music yet we've not talked about john williams <laughs> Yeah, you, you should probably say something about the music. Kind of an important component yes. of Jaws. <laughs> yeah, so but before we finish, <laughs> John Williams. Yeah, I mean, when he made this, he was already an established composer, but this was what like really rocked him into the big time. And obviously from here on, he was making like Star Wars and like practically every Spielberg movie. The one really iconic anecdote about his score for this is that, you know, when he told Spielberg the theme he'd come up with for Jaws and was like, you know, just like on a piano. Spielberg kind of thought he was kidding and was just like laughing and was like, what? This this isn't music. But of course, it is famously extremely effective. You know, Um, they introduce it right at the beginning of the movie. And it's this kind of the, the first scene where you see the girl Chrissy get murdered by the shark. It kind of shows like the two big strengths I think of John Williams like obviously genius icon etc but um as a composer he's this sort of 19th century sort of romantic composer like he does a lot of very emotive music with really big orchestras and during that scene you've got all this very sort of beautiful romantic water music that's done with harps which is sort of a classic trope and it's very twinkly and beautiful but also kind of weird and ghosty because like the harp is often also spooky And then you get like the Jaws theme, which immediately sort of trains your brain into knowing that the shark comes when you've got this sort of heartbeat of those two notes, which ramp up the tension throughout the film. So it's this fantastic, incredibly effective piece of film writing. And then also look at the other parts of the movie. They have extremely different subgenres because you've got this sort of piratical, jaunty theme for when they get on the boat and sort of when they have parades around town and that sort of thing. So he's really like stretching his creative muscles here. Like it's definitely not as sophisticated as the music he does for Star Wars, which is like much more complex and has like a lot more like different themes and stories going on inside it. But like the music of Jaws, very impressive. <laughs> like there is a reason why it's so beloved. <laughs> and also um, Stravinsky's The Rite of Strength, Spring was like a big influence here, which makes sense because it's another uh, famous piece of music about like peril and nature. Well, thank you as always for your musical insight that goes <laughs> far beyond <laughs> my own. Uh, another bold take from us, the music in Jaws is good (laughs) but yeah i mean if you like me somehow never seen this movie uh, i I recommend it fun summer movie i would say so next week we will be discussing the television sensation of the summer sorry to marvel but they have been usurped in the cultural discourse by mike white's the white lotus uh, which I have been having just such a fun time watching. I'm about to watch the finale. I haven't seen it yet. Just a sensational piece of television. You've seen a couple episodes so far. Yes. Yeah, I'm like halfway through, but I'll be finished by next yeah. week. And it's just, it is a cornucopia of character actors. I, like every single time you go to like a different group of the main cast, I think, God, this is the most stressful subplot. God, these are the weirdest and most unpleasant (laughs) characters. And then you go to another one and it's like, oh yeah, that one's also like appalling. (laughs) Jennifer Coolidge is like stunning though. (laughs) 
I find it, I think, less stressful than you and more just like deliciously enjoyable. Though there are definitely some moments where I've had to pause and be like, this is too much, which we'll discuss the details next week. But uh, just incredibly high quality. All the actors are hitting it out of the park. And the production is really fascinating, too, because I'm sure people have read about this because it's been all over the place. But basically, HBO had a hole in their lineup because of COVID problems. And they just called up Mike White and were like, can you write something really fast and shoot it really fast? And he was like, yes. Want to send me to Hawaii? And then they shot it in a bubble last fall, which like... Would that all of us could just like have a job where we'd be like, yeah, send me to an <laughs> exotic locale for a few months and pay me. <laughs> Great. <laughs> so yeah, that will be really fun to talk about next week. So catch up with that show if you have not seen it. It's delightful. And if you would like, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash overinvested podcast. Gavia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor, and you can find me on YouTube at Behind the Seams. And you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at OverinvestedPod, and our website is OverinvestedPodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.